Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Dr. Dana Crawford. Dana is a pediatric and clinical psychologist who developed the Crawford Biased Reduction Theory and Training, CBRT a systematic approach to reducing bias, prejudice, and racism. Dana is a graduate of Howard, Temple, and Miami Universities and has degrees in counseling, African-American studies, psychology, and the arts. She has certifications in practical nursing, medical hypnosis, and biofeedback. She has worked in numerous settings. In recent years, she's worked with the National Black Caucus to create legislation for Black maternal health. Dana is currently a scholar in residence at Columbia University in the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute and has a thriving private practice that she maintains in Manhattan. We're excited to have Dana with us today as we discuss the bias reduction theory. And Dana, I want to welcome you to our show. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited for us to talk today. Thank you. Hey, you know, Dana, let's give our listeners kind of a quick two-minute drill about what brought you in to doing this work around race, privilege, bias. Take us into that. Yeah, well, honestly, I had decided that I would pursue my PhD in clinical psychology, really centered on pediatric and child psychology. And so I was working in the cornfields of Ohio at Miami University. And as I was learning different clinical practices, different techniques, um, I noticed that oftentimes some of my faculty, my patients, uh, my clients, their family, teachers, they had bias, they had prejudice, they had racism towards the very people that they were striving to educate, to teach, mm. to help, to heal. And I noticed much of my education was focused on the bias or the racism experiences of our patients, of our clients, but didn't focus on the practitioner. And so I decided to explore that topic as I was experiencing racism in the classroom myself as a trainee, as a student. And so as we often say in psychology, research is me search. When I am confused about anything, I need to snuggle up to a journal article. And so I went <laughs> to the literature to try and understand this phenomenon. And it really wasn't much data. There was one concept called culture-based counter-transference that really looks at the ways that the therapist, the counselor projects their own experiences onto the client, onto the patient. And from there, I became interested in how do we do that related to culture? So I interviewed therapists all over the world and just asked the question, what do you do when culture shows up in the therapy room? From there, fast forward more years than I'll say since my dissertation. And I realized this phenomenon isn't just something that happens in clinical psychology. It's actually a human phenomenon. Yeah, very good. We're starting out already using various terms, racism, prejudice, bias. And these are terms that, you know, we hear, we kind of throw around sometimes, we use them interchangeably. But help us understand maybe kind of a, a working or operational definition as we work out today and give our listeners a sense of it. Prejudice, racism, bias, give us a, give us some definitions around these and what we're referring to with each one. Yeah, I appreciate that invitation. You know, I always offer the caveat that I have never once in my entire life experience racism, prejudice, and bias, and then I defined it for the person. And then once I defined it, they were immediately evolved and changed. And all of a sudden they had this aha moment, I'm a new human. So I will give the caveat that defining the words is not necessarily a pathway of liberation from these phenomenons. I like to define racism, prejudice, and bias in really accessible terms like 
what would you say to a five-year-old? What would you say to a kid? I have two children. And so I tell my kids that racism is bullying someone because of their race. Um, there are many different types of bullying. Prejudice is when you make judgment about people before you actually know a lot of information about them. And bias are all the different ways that we come with our assumptions and our history and our relationships. I find that it's really hard to parse out each of those phenomenon and say, oh, it's just racism because most people carry multiple identities. So if I'm talking about racism, I'm also talking about gender as a woman. I'm also talking about my privilege of having a PhD. I'm also talking about the region that I'm from, you know, so I'm on the East Coast. So for some people, I speak really quickly. Um, for others, I speak too slowly, right? And so there's so many parts of ourselves that we bring into our relationships that defining the terms is a beautiful exercise in academia. But instead, I invite people to engage in the beautiful exercise of connecting in our humanity. Oh, I like that. One piece I want to come back to, I like the idea of connecting in our humanity. I want to highlight that for our show today, because there's something very special about that, I believe. And I, I anticipate some agreement, uh, strong agreement with you around that, our humanity piece. But I want to highlight, too, that just because we can define terms doesn't mean that there's automatically insight or change, or even we can have insight, but doesn't necessarily translate immediately into change. We know that in therapy, too. Even just, you know, just because you have a, an, an aha moment doesn't mean that there's change automatically. There's, there's steps that have to take place after that, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, I think for my audience... And whenever I'm giving talks and for the audience here, if you're like, oh, well, defining terms does bring insight, I invite you to think about the last time you defined a term related to your health goals and how much did that really bring the change that you wanted. So you can know all day long the ways that we need to eat healthy and exercise and drink water and do all of those things. But that's not necessarily what brings the, the transformation we may be striving for. So awareness and that knowledge is really crucial in some level. How However, it is definitely a beginning point of the conversation. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking earlier today with a colleague of mine about the show. And, you know, I was thinking about when we talk about this topic, it's been talked about and is being talked about a fair amount right now. And my greatest sadness around it is that sometimes in the process of talking about it, it leads to greater division. Mm -hmm. which is the real opposite around what I know your heart is, what I know the best of what we can be is. And I was thinking about, you know, funny you mentioned that about a patient who goes, you know, to their doc and the doc and the person's, you know, a little slightly overweight. And the doc says, you know, the person, you know, well, if you, you know, don't make changes, there's going to be heart disease and diabetes and other health complications in your future. And the same presentation, the, 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 the patient kind of listens, but really doesn't act on It's kind of, they kind of know it. But I'm thinking if that same patient goes to the doc and, and they're asked, you know, what would you like for your life? Can you envision a, a, a better self or more active, engaged, more vibrant self? And sometimes they didn't even have thought about that because they're always used to hearing the negative news or I'm going to be told on this, I'm going to be told on that. And, you know, I'm kind of passive or maybe even get kind of angry. I don't want to go to the doc. I don't listen anymore. Mm -hmm. But what if that doc came in with this idea? Maybe what you're saying here, of what if we talk in such a way that, you know, our biases, our prejudices, our, 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 our racial tendencies, what if we frame it around this idea that what are we missing out of? What can we have with a, maybe back down, back down the lane of a greater humanity, that if we can work this out individually and collectively, community-wise, as a nation even, mm -hmm. 
what could we have? What could we experience on the other side of these things that keep us stuck that we may or may not even know about that could lead to a greater appreciation for one another, stronger identities individually as a group, a more enriched life, a fuller life? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, Graham, I really appreciate that framing. Um, what do you envision? And so that's yeah. really the, the starting point of talking about CBRT, this model that I developed. And what I frame it as is our values. So yeah. often when someone is accused or named or you know challenged about, oh, you're racist or you're prejudiced, oh, you're homophobic, whatever that is or phobia might be, the defense is, no, I'm a good yeah. person, right? Okay. And so in my work, I talk about, okay, how is it that your values that you have that are so beautiful yeah. and so anchored in connecting and seeing people? And even if it's not that, you're not, no, I'm not at that, you know, I'm, I'm more on the scientific side or mathematics and it's not that quite that level, but if it's just like, I want to be kind to people, yeah. how do your values not match your actions? How could your biases prevent you from behaving in ways that are in line with your values? And that's what racism, prejudice, and bias often does. It forms a barrier to people's true humanity. And the reason that that happens is really, I theorize, connected to our resources. So many times people use social identity, if that social identity is race, if that social identity is gender, if it's sexual orientation or nationality, whatever that identity is, they use that identity the brain as a shortcut to determine who gets what resources. So those resources might be really concrete, like land, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about my native brothers, sisters, and non-binary siblings. It might be the resource of healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. So who gets healthcare in this company, this country, or it might be the resource of respect mm -hmm. and time. And I'm thinking about like maybe the valet. Right. And so like, is this person worthy of my time or the maintenance right. person or that person you called and you complained about on the phone because they weren't doing their job and you're like, I don't even have time for this. Right. Those are all resources. Right. And so we use social identities as a resource shortcut. We look at people, we conceptualize them, put them in a box, and then automatically we decide what resource they get. Mm -hmm. What I'm inviting people to really recognize is that resource distribution system of social identity is broken. It's not really effective. And a lot of times we might be delightfully surprised um, if we were to actually lean into our humanity and our values of being this good person that we all uh, are striving to be and name ourselves to be, right. but yet don't always act in that way what a great invitation be able to ask people hey what what are your values and how are the things that you're doing lining up with the very things you proclaim to be important to you and is are you living kind of that genuine authentic life that you'd really like to be living and maybe think you are but maybe when we take a little bit of examination or we kind of mind down a wee bit we get to see that hey maybe there are times when i'm not and it's almost like the, 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 you kind of get to create kind of a therapeutic and healthy dissonance that comes out of this sense of, I thought I was, but maybe I'm not. And I hadn't seen that before. And maybe that's not the best self that I really want to be. And so part of this is not just an introspection, but it's also kind of a nudge towards envisioning a greater humanity that can translate into some really interesting interactions with one another and maybe some fundamental changes that could be necessary on a bunch of levels that you're naming here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I think that racism, prejudice, and bias is actually a humanitarian crisis, mm -hmm. and we need to frame it that way. I think more people have died because of racism, prejudice, and bias than any medical condition we can imagine, and it is something that is spread. 
I think of it as a socially transmitted disease and we're all infected. And so as we think about it in that way, then it, it opens up more space for compassion, for grace, mm -hmm. for connection. If I say, well, all of us are infected, it's just a matter of what does your infection look like? Maybe your infection looks like queer phobia, but you're really, really compassionate and thoughtful around national issues, right? Or maybe your specific brand looks a lot like racism, but you have a lot of understanding and connection for impoverished communities, right? And so what does your infection look like? Not do you have that infection? And when you look at it that way, then it's not a space of judgment. It is absolutely that space you talk about for healing. Right. Let me ask you, you're, you're, you're being pretty candid and open here. How have you recognized in yourself times when you've been, yeah, you've raised your hand, I'm raising mine as well. Mm -hmm. But in terms of your own cultural bias or the prejudice or racial type things that can come up, how have you found yourself hurting people and how did you discover and then kind of heal that? Yeah, well, I think the biggest part is just assuming that it's there. And I'm always on the quest to look for it. So I remember I was giving a training a few months back, actually more than a few months, it was probably a year plus ago. And oftentimes when I give trainings, I invite people to share a cultural rupture. And I define that as an experience where you said the wrong thing or someone else said something and you had a relationship with someone, but something, that cultural thing broke it. And we all have those experiences. Like, why did I say that? Or I can't believe so-and-so would say that. They're such a great person, right? And so I invite people to share their cultural rupture and then do it over and describe how they wish it would have gone. So really, you know, it's a trauma-informed approach to heal the brain. And so in this training, I was doing that same process. And every time I do that invitation, if there is a Black woman present, uh -huh. she's always the first person to volunteer. So much so when I present with other people, I always joke like, oh, okay, today the Black woman is going to be the first volunteer. I'm so tired of this. Can somebody else have the courage? Why is it always the Black woman? And so uh -huh. in this particular training, the first person that spoke up was a white woman. And so she spoke up, she shared, and then I proceeded to tell her the story like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited that it's not a Black woman to be the first person to volunteer. Maybe there's change happening. And the woman looked at me and she said, I am Black. I said, what? I'm sorry, what? And she was like, my whole life, people have questioned my Blackness. I am a Black woman. Just because I appear white, you make that assumption that I am white. And I was just like, and it was horrible because it was a national training. It was in front of all these people. I was mortified. I was like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, I apologized very graciously. And I have to say, I am good at an apology. Like I can, ooh we, I can apologize to someone. So I gave her the my whole heart, like, here you go, ma'am. And some of my soul too. And I was like, I greatly apologize. I made assumptions. You know, I think about people who are white passing and she was like white passing. And I realized in that language, which is the language from the literature, a more appropriate term is white appearing because passing implies there's an act of choice, right? Like if you're passing as, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus like, she just appears white. I, I make assumptions on how people live or how they look rather. And so in that moment, she called me out. I was very embarrassed. And then after I apologized, she said, thank you so much. No. Oh my. 
And it was, it was really painful. And I learned a lot. I guarantee you, I never did that again. I never misnamed someone's identity ever again in that way. But it was such a wonderful opportunity for me to explore the language that I use, the assumptions that I make, and then to demonstrate how to apologize and also to hold the space that just because you apologize genuinely, no one has to accept it. You know, that's perfectly in her right. She she can have her experience in the world and it's up to me to hold the space that I've harmed unintentionally, absolutely unintentionally, but it's about impact, not intent. Um, so that was one of my most humiliating and embarrassing and favorite learning moments, I will say. And I, I continue to thank her for that and share that in many different spaces. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig-time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com bht. And then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com jobs. That's app.hellotriad.com jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. I so appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, no, I so appreciate you sharing that with us. Let me see if I could kind of join you in that. This idea that, you know, you just innocently kind of traipsed into that and without any intention to hurt or anything else. And just kind of a maybe excited moment about it. Hey, well, here's a different start, you know, than I usually have and innocent and well-intended and, and it, and it triggered something. And I, I can sense your heart right out of the gate. And I've read a lot of what you've done and watched all the videos you've presented on. And, and so I, I, I get your heart as being a good one. And, and here you are with this apology, trying to work yourself back out of something that was so unintended, but it left an impact regardless of your sincerity or your genuineness. And I'm thinking in a larger way, we all traipse into things like that. We, we stumble on things and we stub our toes on each other's emotions and unintentionally impact each other. And we want to make repairs. You know, we, we, we want to try and say, Hey, I, 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 I didn't get that moment the way you did. And I'm getting it now the way that you got it. And what that's doing for me with your willingness to kind of hold me accountable here is to say, hey, this is what it meant to you. But there may be times when people just say, yeah, no. And there's almost, I don't want to say a refusal, but something about that impact disallows a moving forward on this. And you try it again to go back another round or two, probably. And at some point, probably just had to say, well, you know, let's move forward. And whatever you did, I would imagine very professionally and very gracefully. And graciously. But what about those moments where, you know, I, I said something I, I made a mistake on and, and I conveyed my intent, but it can't get past to the impact mm-hmm. that's sitting with you. What's your sense of that? 
Yeah, I mean, in that moment, of course, I moved on. It was a training and it was a professional space. But there's been, you know, I'm a, th- I'm a therapist, I'm a psychologist. So I theorized that maybe this woman never had a chance to not accept the apology. Maybe yeah. it was her boss who apologized and she had to accept the apology. Maybe, you know, there have been times in her life that she's That's been empowered and never got the chance to say no, right? And so Very good. that was healing in itself for her. I think yeah. it also was educational for other people to see someone who has certain titles that mean things to people, apologize and be humble and be rejected. I think that's really powerful. But afterwards I wept, you know, I processed it in my own therapy. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I'm supposed to be an expert in teaching people and I'm still getting it so wrong. And I'm so thankful for those moments because I think that vulnerability invites other people to get it wrong too. Yes. You know, like we're going to get it wrong and that's yeah. okay. And then I think for the spaces that you don't get past it, when I think of things that I maybe have done in my life that had an impact, like being in a car accident and can't fix it, the car is total, right. those kind of things in my youth. Um, part of that is just holding it and learning from it and not replicating those same things over and over again. The cultural do-over we do in the work, but I also invite people to do it in the shower to just like go over what you would say and practice those words and move your jaw because it literally creates muscle memory. So the next time you have a cultural rupture, you're going to be a lot more sharper and practice. And that's really what I invite the work to move from that awareness to really building concrete skills of what do you say when you say the wrong thing, like being able to repair it in a moment rather than pondering and coming back to it in weeks and months and years. And then it's awkward and it's cringy and you see the person and you avoid them. And now you're all like weird with each other. And it's like, eh, right. Don't do that. Right. How can we build skills that actually bring change and connection? Yeah. I want to get into the CBRT in just a moment here. I want to highlight this one piece you're saying here too. There are going to be times when we make an innocent mistake, or maybe we make a mistake or an injury that, you know, maybe we were kind of bent in a way in that moment, but we sincerely want to come back and apologize and make something right. And there are times ideally when we get to grow from that, you know, some of the research and therapy says when we start off with a negative transference and we can grow from that transference that, that, that initial, that relationship therapeutically is so strong. Mm -hmm. And I think ideally that carries over to when, you know, I hurt you or you hurt me and we make a, we, we make a repair here and we grow from it kind of in a resilient kind of gritty way that we're actually stronger, you know, because of the men's that we can make. And I think it's a really lovely way to experience relationships, having a chance to grow both personally and, and, and collaboratively. But there are some times when the apology, the intention being shared, it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle for the person. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can't do much more than show up and say, Hey, you know what? I apologize and I'm really sorry. And if it can move the, move the needle for us both or for them, great. If it can't, I like what you did. You have to kind of accept that maybe this is what it meant for that person at that time in their growth. And maybe there's other things at play here. Hey, I know you've got a great assessment tool in the intercultural development inventory. Tell us a little bit about that. And then weave us into your Crawford bias reduction theory training, your CBRT training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the IDI is not a measure that I developed, but is nationally, internationally known. It's a measure that looks at 
the ways our values show up and our actions yeah. show up when differences and commonalities are present. So yeah. however you define difference, what do you do when that happens? However you define commonality, what do you do when that happens? And so when I first started at my uh, residency at Zuckerman uh, at Columbia University, I really was trying to find a good measure for DEIB change, for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging change. And so I met with national experts. I tried to write my own, and it, it was going not where it needed to go. And so I came across the IDI, and it had been normed with 200,000 people globally translated into 17 different languages. And I said, yeah. you know, I'm not going to be able to match this science. However, there are so many elements of it that felt really integrated with my model. And so what my model was inviting people to do is first to have that awareness, right? It's everything that you already know in all these conversations around diversity or cultural competency or cultural humility or whatever training you want to call it this month, because the language is always changing sure. as we get better at being more precise and hearing each other. But it's that awareness, but it's moving that awareness from this global institutional space, systemic, to an internal. What activates me? What does my mm. affection look like? It's the awareness that I have an STD. You do too. We all have this socially transmitted disease. And so it's that awareness and what activates it? What turns mm. it on for you? What stimulates it? The next is an investigation. And my scientific friends here say, well, actually, Dana, it's interrogation. It's interrogation of thought. And I'm like, okay, that's a lot and it's loaded socially. So we're going to just stay with investigation, but it is interrogation. Um, but it's really investigating how does it manifest? What does it look like individually, interpersonally, in your relationships and institutionally? And lastly, it's reducing it. And so in that awareness and an investigation, it's recognizing that resources are part of this conversation. So often we talk about this work, but we don't say like, it's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take money. It's going to require resources to be changed and how they're distributed, right? So that's the awareness and the investigation. And then the reduction is shifting from being so reactive when you're activated to being value-driven. In order to be value-driven, you have to be present. So it requires a mindfulness, right? It's not like you're going to get a calendar invite that racism is showing up today. No, it comes in an elevator. You didn't even know it was coming today, right? It's an uninvited party guest. And so it's that mindfulness. And then it's the authenticity. Many times we lie to ourselves about mm -hmm. what's really inside. We lie to ourselves about what we see because it's so painful and we're just trying to cope. And all of that comes together to lead to strategic and sustainable action. Yeah. And so what CBRT does is it walks people through all three of those steps and those processes to really get to a place of change, that we are in a more value-driven space and our values are in line with our actions. Well, I really like that. You know, it goes back to what you said earlier about being kind of the, the humanity piece and, you know, we could say, hey, you know, you can't do that, or you've got to do this. That, that, that'd be like the doctor says, you know, you can't eat this, you can't do this, you can't drink that, you can't do that behavior. Yeah, the, the more you start talking about that, the more kind of defensive we just naturally get. We're kind of wired that way, aren't we? But what you're saying here in the humanity being envisioned, you're encouraging someone almost to be their best self and to be conscious of that and to think, you know, what can I do in this moment intentionally? It might not be my natural bent. Maybe I was raised a certain way, or maybe the, you know, the the the, the place where I was raised, we had these kind of natural thoughts. Maybe the institutions that I've been a part of, kind of just unknowingly indoctrinated me in certain ways, and I wasn't even aware that 
I was walking out with those things. But what you're saying here, if in my heart, I really feel like I, I, I want to be this type of person in relationship with you, with your differences, with my differences, et cetera, you're encouraging this, this shift to being really, what would be your best self in this moment? And to practice that. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say we were all raised in that way, right? And we were raised that way because the job of a parent in a community is to protect you and to preserve the resources, right? Like if you don't have enough food, you will starve. And so if you view difference as a threat to that resource, right? If too many people come from another country, we're not gonna have enough food in America, right? And so then we are trained to say, no, we don't want people from other countries because we're trying to protect our resources. That's part of, that's survival, that's parenting. The job of the brain is to keep the body alive, right? So we were all programmed for that safety. The problem is we use social identities as the tool of maintaining our safety. And those are inaccurate. There are many other measures we should be using to right. assess our resource distribution, not our social identities in a globalized world. It's just archaic. It doesn't work anymore. It was fine when we had, you know, people didn't fly as much and travel as much and we didn't have the internet. But now that really can't work in these ways. And I don't know if it ever was fine as I think about our history. Was there ever a point that using social identity, maybe it was some cave people, I don't know who, but it, it really doesn't work in a world in which we are all always interacting with each other. Yeah, I would agree. So this idea with your CBRT, it's about that, that awareness. What activates me and that investigation? What are my triggers and what, what, what are my manifestations of that? What, how's that come out and play out? And then these the biases and the impact of this, this is taking a look at how can we reduce this in such a way that we can interact with each other in more productive ways. What do you, what are you hoping comes out of these three and the changes that you're hoping to see? And what do you see actually as people go through your trainings and what are they walking out with? And what are you seeing their lives kind of in terms of the humanity piece transform more into and evolve into yeah, you know, usually when people go to my trainings, they say really, they give me small feedback, like this is the most transform transformative experience of my entire life. Please follow yeah. me everywhere. So those are usually the things that people say. I read um, your testimonials. That's, that in fact is what they're saying. Yes, that's yeah, true. That's, that's the Can feedback. And I think what is so powerful for people is an invitation to be honest with themselves, yeah. an invitation to practice new skills, and a bold wish for a world that's different. My motto is bias reduction. I hope maybe my kids will become scholars one day and it'll be bias eradication. But I don't see that being possible because it's a brain thing. It's how our brain operates to categorize things. We all mm -hmm. categorize. So my hope is that people recognize the ineffectiveness of categorizing people by social identities and they mindfully develop new skills for determining their safety and their resources that are more equitable. Really big on an institutional level, but on the day-to-day -day level, my hope is that people have more genuine, connected relationships that don't harm each other, um, related to social identities and cultural identities. Yeah, really good. You know, as psychologists, you know, we, we, we both and our colleagues tend to look at the importance of the families, you know, you've got a couple of kids, I've got three and, and, and what are we doing to model within our families, kind of our best selves, 
the humanity piece that we're talking about and how we might encourage curiosity about differences and how we might have habits of the heart, you know, whether it's kind of love thy neighbor or, or this idea that, you know, what is unique and special about each one of us and how can we embrace that in a way that is with gratefulness and, and kind of an appreciation. What, what are you seeing in, in terms of, you know, secondary and tertiary prevention is when someone's already kind of down the road some ways with something being identified and now we're going to go treat it, you know, but if we're looking at primary prevention, if we can get out in front of it, get out, get, get out ahead of it and maybe foreclose on some things early, they don't have to develop if we can get, if we can be intentional around it. Talk about the role of the family that you yeah. see and what you may be even doing in your family. I'll share yeah, some of mine too. Yeah. It's a hard one because where's the place of prevention? So I think about the horrific statistic that black female doctor is three to five times more likely to die related to childbirth than a 17 year old white girl in a trailer park. And when I share that statistic, people are like, whoa, trailer park, you know, what I want to highlight in this stat is that regardless of income, regardless of education, racism, will determine if you even survive creating a family. Hmm. And then I look at the fact that a, a Black newborn baby is three times more likely to die if their pediatrician is white. Hmm. And so it's hard to say where's the greatest point of prevention where literally racism, not race, but racism will determine if your family even starts. When I gave birth to my daughter, I almost died in childbirth. I had what's called an inverted uterus, and it happens in about one in 300,000 births. It's an 80% likelihood that you will die by hemorrhage. Of the 20% that do live, 80% of them have to have a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. And so that happened with my first child, and I have two children now. And so I often wonder, like, what was it that made me live? And there was this one moment when I was, after I delivered my daughter and the doctor was examining me and I said, that hurts. And she said, what? I said, that hurts. And she immediately said, code blue. Now that Mm. moment, when I said that hurts, her bias could have dismissed my pain because there's also a statistic that says that white medical trainees, 50% believe that black people experience higher, they have higher pain thresholds than white people that our bodies can deal with pain more. And so we have less sensitive nerve endings. That's what Mm -hmm. medical trainees, people who've sacrificed years of their lives in the library, missed all the parties, right? And yet that's the bias of such a humanitarian, humane group. And I think about when I said, ouch, she hurt me. She hurt me. And that was the moment that I would have bled to death if she didn't hear my goodness. And so when I think about my family, it is a constant, ferocious, relentless communication to my children that you are a person here for connection. You are a person here that is going to create inclusion. You are a person here that will see people and Mm -hmm. they will matter. And so uh, a few weeks ago, my daughter was watching this TV show on Netflix and it's like dust bunnies. I think it's like Gabby cats or something. There's all these dust bunnies. They're dust bunny family. And it was a a big, two big dust bunnies and lots of little baby dust bunnies. And my daughter and my son are talking and she goes, oh, I can tell who the mommy and daddy dust bunnies are because they're bigger. And she goes, oh, well, it could be the mommy and the mommy dust bunny. Well, actually it could be 
daddy and a daddy. I guess I could just say the grown up dust bunnies. And so I'm like braiding her hair and she's saying that. And I'm like sobbing, like, oh my gosh, this moment in time, I'm not a failure as a mom. You know, I think everyone as parents are constantly in this place of like, I'm ruining my kids. That's why I have a savings account for their future therapy. And so in that moment, I was like, maybe I can put $1 less in this. <laughs> and so in summary, I think the big takeaway for me is like, it is a decision that we are living our, our lives not as allies and supporting difference, but as abolitionists in abolishing harm that is related to cultural or social identities. And that's the expectation in my family, just like the expectation is you clean your ears, right? It's just part of what we do. Part of what you do. Yeah. I really like that. I oftentimes think a little bit of in a similar parallel way that this is much in some ways like an, you know, our EQ or emotional quotient you know, emotional quotient is about my own self-awareness and my ability to manage whatever I'm feeling and needing coming up and being a, not just aware of it, being able to manage and control that. And then to develop empathy for the other person. And then how do I understand them? How do I understand myself? And how do I, in a controlled, inviting way, bring us both together for a shared knowing of each other, a greater knowing of each other, a knownness? And I, I think sometimes, you know, the good news around EQ versus IQ is you can influence our EQ, you can grow it, you can develop it. And we're kind of just without addressing it intentionally, where we just have an EQ that we don't even recognize that we have, much like we oftentimes have bias, prejudice, and racial tendencies that we may not even know that we have, but we can grow this area with that self-awareness and some skills that you're kind of laying out for us. And that's a real hopeful piece. And I love the family, you know, um, I've got three children myself. My youngest was adopted from Cambodia. And, you know, we, we, we naturally had kind of some very interracial things. My father-in-law is, was the, one of the first babies born in the internment camps with a relocation during the war in California. They had their land taken away and, and all kinds of things. I, I've been in Hawaii for 38 years now, almost 39, and a group in L.A., and LA was kind of a, a racially segregated place. Hawaii is a very, very culturally tolerant, very, very integrated uh, place with multiple racial, you know, folks interacting just in 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 many many ways. And we've been as a Caucasian white white man, the minority here, and it's been a wonderful experience to be a part of this and raise kids here and. You know, my kids go out into the world and and much like what you're describing with your daughter, just a sense of awareness and appreciation for others, just who they are. They walk, you know, it, it, they're not perfect and nor am I, because I've, I've stepped on people's toes racially too, and my own bias and prejudice and, and kind of racial moments that come across, you got to catch yourself. And, but I think the home is such a great place. I, I love what you're saying with your daughter and what they're picking up and kind of a proud moment there. And where that openness is encouraged and uh, reinforced. Because I think that's where the habits of the heart have one of the greatest opportunities to be really grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And it's such a hard thing because our world doesn't necessarily lend itself to those opportunities if you don't create it, right? So yeah. many times people go to doctors that are white, you know, they yeah. go to movie theaters in a white neighborhood, they curate a world that they're verbally saying things to their kids, but their kids don't actually get to have those exposures and those experiences and that conversation. 
And then when they actually do, they quiet them like, Shh, don't talk about that. Don't 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 comment that they're they're black. Right. Or don't say that. Right. You know? And it's so funny because one of my my cousins had said something like so and so is white. And their mom was like, Shh, don't say that. And I said, they know they're white. It's not a secret. They know that. Right. And so opening up a space just like every other area of yeah. raising and loving and guiding children it's yes. opening up communication for them and yeah. uh, a clear standard for what you want for your family and of course there is radical acceptance and unconditional yeah. positive regard in the ways that we care for our kids but there are expectations and the expectation is that we're striving to abolish things that harm people in this world that's a that. family value I love the idea too that you're encouraging, you know, the, around this issue, we're going to be clumsy and uncoordinated and we're going to trip and fall. And ideally, you know, we can understand in the, in the, in that, in those moments that may, maybe someone's trying to do their very best. Maybe they, someone says, Hey, that person's of color or that person's, you know, got that disability and rather than kind of hushing it, maybe that's a moment where we can kind of join, you know, in such a way and, and to make it kind of a learning opportunity to really grow ourselves Dana, we're kind of winding down for today, and this show has been a lot of fun. Gone some places I didn't anticipate it to go, but I've really appreciated you allowing us to kind of take it where it went. And I'd like, as we wind down, for you to give our listeners a takeaway message regarding, you know, the benefits that they could expect to experience becoming more mindful around their own biases and and maybe their relational joys and opportunities, much of what we're talking about today, that they could expect from growing their own self and other awareness. What are what, What's the message you want to leave us? Yeah, you know, this past year, since I've introduced the IDI into my work, a lot of times my work gave people really great tools and experiences and practices. But what I've found in doing this assessment piece is it gives them an evaluation of themselves, right? Yeah. So they can look at like, where am I in this work? Yeah. And I think there's something really powerful about that. And so I invite listeners to obviously, if they want, reach out to me through my website, Dr. Dana Crawford or drdanacrawford.com to take the IDI. But if you're not you know, interested in necessarily taking the IDI with me, what I invite you to do is do a self-assessment. Where are mm -hmm. you? Look at how your values are matching your actions. Yeah. Sit down and write, like, what are my three top values when it comes to difference? Answer yes. that question for yourself. And how does that show up in the world? Would your, would your neighbor know that's your value? Mm -hmm. Would your coworkers know that's your value? And to me, yeah. if no one else knows it, and it's only yeah. living inside, then yeah. it's very likely that your actions are not matching your insides. And so yeah. what are you going to do about that? Are you okay with that? And if you're not okay with that, why not change, right? Why yeah. not be the person you want to be in the world? Not even be the change you want to be in the world, be the person no, you want my to person. be in the world. Yeah. And I think to that, that metaphor that you gave about the medical going in and the physician is giving comments about the weight, I like to ask people, how do you want to feel in your body? Yes. What's your body to feel when you, yeah. when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you reach for things, do you want it to do the things that you needed and wanted to do? And so I, I lend that same metaphor to bias, prejudice, and racism. When someone shows up, how do you want to be with them? Yes. How do you want them yes. to feel after they interact with you? Yeah. How would you like that? How, how would you like that interaction to be experienced? And what would you like to feel as you walk away from that time together? 
Exactly. Yeah, I love that. I, I appreciate that message. You gave a, a resource in there, but I'm going to ask just formally to give us some ways for our listeners to follow up after the show, to learn more about you, the CBRT, and the inventory you just described. Give us some resources where they can link up with you. Yeah, so the easiest way to find me is where we all are in these internet streets. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I just signed up for a thread account, Instagram, Facebook, and in all of those spaces, I'm the same. Dr. Dana Crawford, Dr. Dana Crawford are my handles in all of those spaces. Also, my website, Dr. Dana Crawford, or you can just email me, Dr. Dana Crawford at Gmail. And I would love to connect with you, hear your story, and help you close the gap between your values and your actions in this world. Really good. Really good. Well, Dana, it's been a joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Dana and me today. It's always great to have you with us. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and an archive of all of our other episodes and resource materials can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com bht. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.